Hey y'all, welcome to episode 12 of the Plaid Pilot Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Weld. 93 years ago this week, a bunch of women, including Amelia Earhart, got together and formed an organization to promote aviation and support aviatrixes. They call themselves the 99s, and they still exist today. Joining me to help tell their story is private pilot and president of the MSU Denver chapter of Women in Aviation, Natalie. Hey, Natalie. Hey. So how are you doing today? Oh, I'm good. A little tired, a little shaken up. I had an interesting uh, experience. <laughs> you had uh, something, an incident coming back uh, from a flight today, right? Yeah. Um, potentially two instances of a possible midair. So it was very... Oh, wow. It was back to back. It was just kind of... It was very unsafe, but I feel like myself and uh, the pilot I was flying with handled it really well. We tried to keep ourselves safe and just very aware of what was going on around us. So we handled it well, but the events leading up to it and even afterwards from it, um, debriefing, it was just kind of like, this is how these things happen. They're instantaneous. Even if you try your best, it's just, you can't escape it always. So, Yeah. Well, we won't go into a whole lot of detail on here today with something so big, especially so soon. Uh, but I think it's something maybe to share in the future for sure. Uh, definitely potential for lessons learned. But I am glad no one was hurt. Uh, well, I guess if you uh, you want to introduce yourself and, and uh, tell everybody a little bit about who you are and what you do and what ratings you hold and that kind of thing. Yeah. So my name is Natalie. Um, I am currently a student. I have a bunch of jobs. I work too much. Uh, I'm going to school. <laughs> I am pursuing a bachelor's in aviation um, and then also a bachelor's in English. Let's see. I'm a private pilot, instrument rated. I'm currently working on my commercial. I hope to have that done by the end of the year. I just need to polish up maneuvers and then I'm basically set. So I'm super close there. Um, I'm also the president of MSU Denver uh, Women in Aviation. That is the university I attend. And I'm also the secretary of our Alpha Eta Rho chapter. So I'm very involved in the community, uh, both our uh, school community and the pilot community, just in the general aviation area. Okay. Cool, cool. And you are a member of the 99s or? I used no. to be actually. Okay. Um, I've taken off way more than I can chew, I feel sometimes, uh, being involved <laughs> in women in aviation and Alpha Eta Rho and everything else. So it's just something yeah. I kind of had to choose, but. Okay, cool, cool. Well, that's still uh, still cool. Still used to used to be involved with them. So it'd be good, mm-hmm. good experience. So before we get into our main topic, I want to recognize this week's Plaid Pilot Podcast Aviatrix of the Week. Skylar recently soloed at Boundary Bay Airport up in British Columbia, Canada, after overcoming some hurdles with the medical process, and she agreed to come on the show and share a little bit about her experience. Hey, Skylar. Hey, hey, hey. Thanks for having me, Todd. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on. So congratulations. Yeah. You uh, just did your first solo. How was that? Sure did. It was so exhilarating. Um, so I don't know if you know, I'm currently, I'm actually from the States originally from California and living in, um, right now, Vancouver, British Columbia. Okay. Um, so not necessarily used to this weather. (laughs) It's a little (laughs) rainy, a little cloudy. Um, but it was funny. It's like the, our summer kind of extended into late October. Um, and on the day woke up, look up, you know, look up, see the dark clouds and the rain, just figured I'm not going to be going, went back and forth with my flight instructor, you know, and she was like, yeah, you're for sure not going to be able to solo today. Um, it's your choice if you want to come in. And mind you, I have an hour and 35 minute commute on public transport to get to my flight school. So wow. let's talk about commitment. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, two buses, uh, a train, and then another two buses at the end because um, it's pretty remote. It's in a yeah. um, city called Delta. And, um, yeah. So anyways, so 30 minutes after I was originally supposed to leave, she messaged me and she's like, Hey, if you come now, there's a small window, you might be able to fly solo. So of course I'm going to take it, you know? Right. <laughs> and so my boyfriend happened to be off. We rent, we borrowed my um, friend's car, hopped in the car, went to the airport. And literally as we're driving in, like you just see the cl- clouds start like parting. <laughs> oh, <laughs> start like it was parting. meant to be. Literally, we'll get this. So then, um, so we get there and then I just, you know, I had my expectations low because I just didn't want to get disappointed if I wasn't going to end up going. Um, and then, uh, so I'm sitting in the classroom and then all of a sudden, you know, Alice, my instructor goes, all right, let's go up, you know, for a couple circuits and we'll see if you can go solo. And then it's like each time, you know, we finish the circuits. She's like, all right, well, I guess you can go solo. I was like, oh my God, each time I just didn't, I wasn't expecting to go, you know? And right. then, so I fly solo and it was the most thrilling the whole time. I'm just like, 
laughing and smiling to myself, you know? And um, and then as I'm coming down, had the best landing I've ever <laughs> done in my life, like in my, what, almost year of flying. Um, so I land. And then as I'm landing, it starts to drizzle. And at the end of the runway, there's a rainbow. So Oh, nice. <laughs> hard, but it was yeah. a pretty good solo for the first one. That's so awesome. um yeah. And then after that, it started raining, of course. So um, yeah, it was, it was a small window and so glad it was able to happen, which was Yeah, great. at least it held off long enough for you to, to get up. And yeah, do that. 100%. Cool. And I think that's the best way to do it. Unfortunately, like during winter, you know, you kind of have to go with, roll with the punches. And if you're not going to fly on one day, you're not going to fly and, you know, but um, yeah. yeah, it's all worth it when you can. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. So you you had some roadblocks on the way to uh, getting to solo, right? You had some a medical. Now yeah. you fall under transport Canada, right? Rather than. Transport Canada, Canada. Correct. Yep. So, so things may be a little bit different um, versus somebody who was trying to get their medical out of the U S. Um, yeah. But you want to talk a little bit about what that struggle was like trying to get cleared medically and all that kind of thing. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the biggest thing, um, which I'd heard from many people was that Transport Canada just had a massive backup on, um, I don't know if it was just specifically aviation physicals uh, or medicals, but um, I mean, it was, yeah, it was really backed up. And when I, I got mine July 6th, I took my, I had my medical done. And when I was there, I said, how long, you know, typically will it take? And they go, well, we're going to submit it in eight days which I didn't really understand in general. Like I'm getting it done today. <laughs> Mind you paying what, $200, $300, you know? Um, so they were like, we're going to submit it in eight days and then it should probably take about five to six months. And so my, I was like, wait a second. Because knowing, knowing that that's going to delay my whole entire progress, yeah. you know, like the entire solo. So um, again, this being in July, I didn't know how long we were going to have left of the summer here, you know? And the when flyable weather, happen. yeah. Yeah, 100%. And so um, so when that happened, um, yeah, I just waited on it. We, I, I like, I was still flying two times. Like I typically fly about two to three times a week now. Um, and so I was keeping that up. But it's like my instructor was like, if you want to slow down, you know, like kind of just so, so that it comes in time with the medical, you know. Right. And then um, I finally, it was like two and a half months, I think, afterwards. I was like, there's no way it's going to take five to six months, you know? I mean, that it would be, I'd be still waiting if that was the case, you know? Yeah. And um, so I called, um, I called the aviation, you know, whatever, the aviation sector, uh, civil aviation. Um, and they said they had sent me a letter. And so I go, I have not received a letter yet. You know, I, I go, where did you send it to? And they said, we sent it to your email address. I, or, you know, it was, it was like this uh, private, um, Oh, I can't think of the word. It's like a cryptid message, if you will. Okay. And so I said, can you, do you mind sending it to me on this thread? I open it and they had sent me an email three weeks prior and they spelled my email wrong. So wow. if I didn't say anything, <laughs> but mind you, that actually wasn't even the medical. So, um, so I opened that. I let them know that they obviously spelled my email wrong. And when I signed on to it, they wanted me, even though I got my eyes tested, I don't have horrible eyes. I will say that. Um, in fact, I have 20-20, but the, um, uh, it said that I needed to get an exam because I didn't do it with my, I have distance glasses, like at nighttime, oh, okay. just after time. And so because I didn't do it with my glasses, they wanted to request another one. So I got the exam literally that day and sent that to that same address um, and just said, here are the results, you know, and then what do you know, a week and a half later, or actually it was five days later, I got my, um, got it mailed to me. Oh, wow. So, okay. So they actually got it taken care of pretty quick. Exactly. And it ended up not being the five, five to six months, which I mean, who knows, you know, obviously every, that could have been COVID <laughs> timeline, but I, you know, maybe they're trying to get my expectations low because right. no one knows, you know, when anything's happening, but yeah. Okay. Well, but that's, uh, yeah, it's, I know medicals hang a lot of people up uh, in the States. Do you plan on coming back down to the States? And, uh... um, I don't. To live, probably not. I no, okay. um, So I was actually living in Melbourne, Australia before this um, okay. for about four and a half years. Um, and we're probably – my boyfriend, he's from New Zealand. So we're probably going to be moving back in the next year and a half or so, maybe a year. Um, okay. So I am looking, it's amazing here in Vancouver. Absolutely love it. It's just the cost of living is insane. Yeah. Um, this would be, it's so funny because my immediate goal is to be a float plane pilot, a commercial float plane pilot. And it's like, this is 
the place to do it. Yeah, you know? there's a lot so of opportunities like, up there for that. hundred percent. And speaking of, it's funny. I live in this place called Coal Harbor. I'm literally, I just watched two float planes fly by. But it's like the the airport is literally right here. That's called Harbor okay. Air. Um, and I actually just got a job with them. I'm going to be a dockhand operator, which is going to be great. So at least I can oh, just get my congratulations. foot in the door that way. Thank you. Um, so I'm just getting a foot in, my, in the door that way. And it's great because the chief executive um, – the officers are that's their office if you will mm-hmm. so like they're you know who they're going to be choosing there's a first officer training program and stuff like that which is great for the employees obviously once you become um eligible um but they like hand pick who's a part of that and then also moving forward who will be a float plane pilot for harbor air okay which is yeah great. networking so, is huge especially in the aviation industry just get oh, your 100%. name out there and all that kind of stuff so yeah networking is huge so it's it's definitely something i've always done but like knowing that there's a whole aviation community is just so great. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so many opportunities that come from somebody saying, Hey, I know this great pilot. You should give her a listen. And then. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. And I, that's why yeah. I appreciate you reaching out. You know, I'm, Yeah. I appreciate you reaching out so much. Cause it's like, you know, I, I started my little Instagram just as a blog for myself, just to see the progress, you know, but then now seeing all these people from around the world where they're flying and, now I feel like I have my own little aviation community, you know, which yeah. is so great. And so I kind of just want to build on that and be able to like, yeah, while I'm not in flight school or while I'm not at a networking event or something, I'm still able to be in tune with what's happening in that, in that world. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, and, uh, and that's kind of what this whole thing's about is just more than, more than just the networking is getting people's stories out there. Uh, both, I mean, it's primarily an mm-hmm. aviation history podcast, so big history type stuff, but also, you know, all of the people that we talk about there at one point there were five hour pilots, you know, and didn't know anything and they hadn't done anything noteworthy. And I think that it's, it's important Mm -hmm. to also celebrate and recognize people today that are, are hitting these milestones and first solos are a big thing. There's nothing check ride, private pilot check ride that nothing changes, but that solo, like you go from not being able to, I mean, obviously you're able to fly an airplane, but you don't know you're able to fly an airplane by yourself. And then you, you do. And now you're no, hundred percent. Like it's, and you survive. Like <laughs> right. Like you land safely, the airplane's in one piece, and it's just it's the greatest feeling in the world. So yeah. um I like to to try Definitely. and recognize those. And then especially like with your situation where you hit those roadblocks, it wasn't smooth sailing. I think it's important somebody's gonna hear your story who's struggling with their medical right now, and then they can say, mm-hmm. you know, hey, it's worth it in the end, keep pushing through and rather than get discouraged and say, you know what, I'm not Definitely. gonna fly. So, yeah, a hundred percent. And like, I, it's so funny. It's like, I, the, on top of that, you know, it's like hitting these roadblocks. I, I assume I'm hoping that, well, I don't hope, but I assume that most people in flight school are hitting these roadblocks. I mean, that's what these challenges are, what make it so worth it at the end. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, and it's just, I mean, flight school is very expensive. I'm sure we can all agree on that. <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, another roadblock that way that I hit again, only being able to work. I was, I was, trying to live here and get my license. And it was Monday through Friday, nine to, you know, five 30, I had a job. And then it's like, I could only fly on a Saturday, you know, because Sundays were always packed or whatever. And so just flying from once a weekend and like knowing that it's like, Oh, I've got so long to get my license, you know, but then mm-hmm. things work out and the passion, you know, it's, it, the passion will carry through. And although, although that seems like roadblocks at the time, it's like, look where we are now, you know, and things change. You're not always going to have the same job. You're not always going to, you know, and you'll be able to kind of move into that. So I'm a huge advocate at like, I don't know, need to believe in yourself and trust your passion and move forward. You know, everything will work out as it should. Yeah. And then absolutely. we'll be all flying planes. Let's see the world. <laughs> so if uh, you so, mentioned yeah. Instagram, if people want to uh, to check out what you're doing on there, how are they going to, how they find you on Instagram? Yeah, so it's Sea Sky Fly, nice and easy. So it's S E E and then S K Y Fly. So um, yeah, just a little again intended to be a blog just for my progress. But now with this aviation community, I'm just wanting to dive in more than ever. So new pilots, flight students, or any anybody who has any questions or just wanting to touch base, hit me up. <laughs> Happy to have a conversation. Cool. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you again for coming on and sharing your experience. Thanks so much, Todd. I appreciate you. And uh, yeah, I look forward to keeping in touch and keeping in touch with your uh, aviation journey as well, your podcast. Thanks.
I really enjoy the whole process of putting this show together, but I've especially enjoyed getting to meet and talk to new pilots and kind of hear their stories and, and learn about their experiences. If you or somebody that you know has recently hit an aviation milestone, whether that's a solo or a new rating or anything like that, uh, and you are interested in being featured as the Aviator or Aviatrix of the Week, get in touch with me. You can uh, shoot me an email at todd at com, or send me a DM on Instagram at theplaidpilot. Also, be sure to follow the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, and if you've listened to a couple episodes, you've enjoyed them. Uh, if you would consider leaving a review or a rating, uh, definitely helps with discoverability, helping other people find that on those platforms. That'd be awesome. I'd really appreciate that. So anyway, back to the 99s. So today we're going to be talking about the uh, women in aviation in general and then the 99s specifically. Um, November 2nd of 1929 was the official, uh, start date of the 99s, which is an all women organization for women pilots. Um, so women have been involved in aviation almost as long as aviation has been a thing. So we know the Wright brothers had their first flight in 1903, the very end of 1903. Uh, but after, after they accomplished that flight, they kind of put it away for some years. Um, they were trying to secure a patent. Which is unfortunate because they could have made a lot of, if they just shared that information with everybody, uh, they could have gotten a lot of, made a lot of progress yeah. in aviation. It wasn't until 1908 when the first public demonstration of aviation occurred, and that was in France. And so really we consider 1903 the beginning of aviation, but it really wasn't brought to the masses in any way until 1908. This was in France, so I don't know why they didn't choose the U.S. to uh, do that. Seems like it would have been easiest. I don't really know why, but I've also heard that. And also that's why certain um, technical terms for parts on an aircraft have French influence or they come from French directly, like empennage and aileron. I mean, they're all French that makes terms, sense, yeah. not yeah, not American. So Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think a lot of the like METARs and stuff like that also use the uh, some of the codes and stuff like for MIST. BR that actually derives from the French rather than mm -hmm. the English. Uh, and so in 1908, the Wright brothers are over in, I think it's Paris, uh, over in France, and they're doing this demo. And a woman by the name of, hopefully I say it right, Raymond de la Roche. Uh, uh, that sounds yeah. right. I am very familiar with her. Yeah, she was actually the first um, woman in the world to acquire a private certificate on March 8th. Yep, of 1910. Yep. So... She was there for the first public demonstration, and yeah, she caught the aviation bug about as early as you could catch it, and um, she was the first licensed pilot. Uh, so she actually soloed in 1909, so this is you know, a year after the first public demonstration. She soloed, so she's taking these lessons. She gets her license in 1910, March 8th, I think you said it was. Yep. So that was going on over there. In the U.S., most women didn't know how to fly and weren't allowed to learn. The Wright brothers opened up a flight school. They said, nope, we're not going to teach women. Their own sister wanted to learn. They yep. said, no. <laughs> Wouldn't teach her own sister because she was a woman. Um, there was a woman named Blanche Scott. I don't know if you're familiar with her. I've heard the name, but I'm not as familiar with her. She was big on automobiles. She was actually, I think, the second woman to drive from coast to coast. Um, of course, this is back in 1910, so there's not a great highway system. Uh yeah, <laughs> it's, you know, not not even good roadmaps. I think she navigated. They'd look at the telephone lines and they'd say, OK, there's a lot of lines going this way. Must be a town. And it worked for her. she she made it, uh, but she got a lot of notoriety after that drive. And so Glenn Curtis, who had his own flight school, he wanted to kind of take advantage of that uh, notoriety that she had. And so he agreed to teach her how to fly for that, you know. For the fame. Right. So it's kind of like, good on you for deciding that it was okay to teach a woman to fly, less so that you just did it out of, you know, selfish. Yeah, what's the motivation there? <laughs> yeah, so she, uh, she, her first flight was actually accidental. We don't know for sure that Glenn Curtis was going to let her fly. So the way they used to teach flying, because a lot of more one-seaters and stuff, they would put a... Mm -hmm. It was a mechanical device on the throttle and they'd say, okay, taxi around. So you could power it up to a certain point and get you familiar with the controls, 
moving it around on the ground, but it wouldn't let you get an airspeed enough to leave the ground. To take off. Right. Uh, and we don't know what happened. She was she was mechanically minded, so she may have done it intentionally. Yeah, who knows? Could have been a malfunction, or it could have just been a strong gust of wind gave her the airspeed she needed. We don't know exactly, but in September, we don't even know the exact date, uh, but in September of 1910, something happened, and she got airborne and took off for a short, short little hop, landed safely, everything was good, and she became the first woman to solo uh, an airplane in the U.S., and we still don't know exactly the story behind that. So the first, so Blanche Scott was the first to solo an airplane. Uh, Harriet Quimby was actually the first to become uh, a licensed pilot. Um, that, that was on August, either 1st or 2nd. Uh, I found both dates. And I think generally, generally the consensus is that she tested the first time on the 1st of August, tested the second time. Uh, on the second so she actually failed her first test Hmm. which is good i just failed my ifr check ride so still still dealing with all that um so it is it is good to see these these uh you know great pilots from history that you know they Mm -hmm. didn't always get it the first time so just got to get back up on the horse and, and give it another go yep yep and one thing about harriet quimby so at this time people didn't want women to fly they said right. that they weren't mentally able to fly. Um, you know, a lot of people, they just wouldn't teach women to fly because they thought that it was just a, a publicity stunt or whatever. They couldn't fathom why a woman would want to fly for some reason. But Harriet Quimby, she was actually, she was kind of a safety pioneer. She did a lot of things and started a lot of practices that we still do as pilots every day today. Pre-flight inspections before Harriet Quimby that was the mechanic's job. And the mechanic would go look at the airplane, say, yep, it's good to go. And they're not going up in the airplane. So right. they're never going to care. <laughs> They'll never care about it as much as the person who's in the airplane. She was also a journalist. She actually considered herself a journalist before a pilot. But she wrote articles um, encouraging women to get into aviation, explaining how safe aviation can be as long as you, you know, proper pre-flight uh, she was big on go no go decisions. They didn't call it that at the time, uh, but she made you know a lot of uh, talk about the weather, if personal minimums and all this kind of stuff. A lot of this all stems from Harriet Quimby and those articles that she wrote um, back in the early 1900s. That's very interesting. I never knew that. I thought that was something that just kind of came out of maybe like overseeing um, agencies, especially like the FAA. Obviously, they yeah. <laughs> promote safety. But I mean, I thought that was something that just kind of came about as more people were getting to the skies and maybe there was more incidents, more actual accidents, people going, we should probably prevent this and take preventative <laughs> measures. Um, but that's cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure a lot of the, the regu- regulatory side of that uh, right. is, was like you were saying, is, as accidents increased, but she was one of the first proponents of you know, as a pilot, like, let's, let's just do the things that make sense to make sure that we have a safe flight. And so usually you had to be somebody, um, unfortunately you had to be white most of the time, uh, in the Mm U S and you had to be well-known Harriet Quimby. She was a well-known journalist, uh, and an actress at the time. Blanche Scott had her cross country trip. So most of these people, um, there was a reason that somebody agreed to teach them. So World War One came and went. There weren't a lot of women pilots at the time, uh, but the few that there were weren't allowed to fly for the war, even though a lot of them actually wanted to. So after the war, it's kind of opens up the age of barnstormers. Uh, they have a lot of airplanes that are decommissioned, getting rid of them, uh, and you can buy them fairly cheap. And there's not really a lot to do other than go place to place and do these stunt shows and they get more dangerous trying to get more people in. There's a long list of people who who died doing crazy stunts or not crazy stunts that just didn't end well. Yeah. All through the 20s. And then uh, 1929, things are getting... These are where we start to look at some of the people that everybody uh, is more familiar with. Amelia Earhart's flying at this point. Um, they actually have, at the National Air Races, this is the first year they have the Women's Air Derby. Yep. Uh, and they had uh, on that one, there was 20 women who, I mean, 19 took off on the first day and then one took off afterwards. But so that was the, the first time that women were allowed into the races, although they were said you have to 
here's your own section of the race. You can't participate with the guys, but right. at least they had that. In, in 1929, there was a little over 9,200 uh, pilots, and only 117 of those were women. So it's yep. just a hair over 1% were women pilots in uh, 1929. And like I said, there's 20 that participated in this race. Not all of them, but most of them would actually go on to become charter members uh, of the 99s. So a little history on just women in aviation in general. That brings us to 1929 when they decided they needed to to do something about keeping track of of uh, the growing number of women that were getting in the air, right? Yep. That's when it all started. So, in 1929, officially, that is when the 99 started to kick off. And it wasn't actually a movement to bring women to some sort of prestige status or say that they were better than men, which I found really interesting. Not that I ever expected that's what it, you know, stood for or still stands for, but they explicitly came out and said, "We don't want women to be considered just because of her gender we want them to be equal in performance in mindset ability and just uh, agility you know up in the skies we want them to fly just as well as the men do but we don't want them to be treated any differently or get any sort of prestige status for that you know that's not what we're about we just want to take this tiny little group of women of people of minority in aviation and show one another that we can be part of a family. You don't have to feel alone. You don't have to feel singled out. And you also don't have to feel like aviation is something that's not attainable for you. Uh, they just wanted to make that a safe space for people to grow and continue growing basically forever. Um, there is a quote from Opal Coons, And she had stated regarding the uh, future of aviation, especially with women um, flying, that Girls have to demonstrate their real ability on a large scale if they expect to hold their own. Our men have demonstrated all these fine qualities, and they are flying every day thousands of miles in all kinds of weather without the slightest attention from either the public or the press. But yet, at the same time, if women did any of those things, even if they just soloed, you know, they get all this attention from the public and the press. And it wasn't something that's it's bad. Obviously, it's recognition and it's propelling more women into the field but at the same time the men were doing these things sometimes even better because they had been doing it longer they had more resources they just had more support but they didn't get any recognition for it so the the original women who founded the 99s they didn't want women to get into the industry for that reason that's not what it was about and they made that very clear um, that they wanted basically any women in the industry whether they wanted to fly, whether they just wanted to be interested as a hobby, as a career. Basically, whatever you want to do, it should be about what you want to do and being good at it, not for anything else. And I just thought that was really interesting because I feel like a lot of people, when you say you're involved in the 99s or you say you're involved in some sort of movement um, to empower and to lift women up in aviation, you kind of get this connotation. Either people are really for it or they're really like, oh, that's that's one of those that, you know what I mean? Like they kind of look at you like you're doing this for a social cause or for social change, not really for the aviation part of it. And that's right. definitely not what it's about. So I, I feel like the fact that they were founded on those kind of ideas really holds true today. And I'm glad that we have such a large network of women who also believe in that. Yeah. So growing up, was, was aviation something you always wanted to pursue or was it um, you woke up one day and, and realized that you wanted to fly or is that, has that been like a lifelong thing for you? I would say both in a weird way. Okay. Um, so my father, he actually just retired last year. He had flown basically his entire life. Also um, an aviation also, family then. Yeah. And my godfather uh, also passed away. Oh, gosh, really eight years now. But he also flew. Um, so I had these two very prominent, strong and, you know, people or men that I loved uh, in my life who flew. So it was something that I was always kind of interested in and I respected. And I just thought, like, these people walk on water or they walk on clouds, I should say. Like, they, <laughs> they are just awesome individuals and I loved them for it. 
but it wasn't anything I actually thought I could do myself. And it's not something that's not because someone ever told me I couldn't or someone restricted me. It's just, I never really had that spark of going, that's something I could do. It was always just something kind of removed from my life, something I respected that they did, but nothing I ever thought I could actually be a part of and enjoy and love. Um, so that didn't actually happen until I was in high school and always, you know, when you're in high school, people ask you, it seems like nine times a day, what are you going to do with your life? Um, yeah. <laughs> and I just kind of, I, I went from not really knowing to going, well, aviation something that, you know, these two people I love really enjoy. Why not kind of think about that? So I looked into it more and more and more and I kind of got it in my head, like, this is what I want to do. So after, after I graduated, um, I actually moved to Colorado. I was living in California at the time. I got my associates uh, in photography because I was still kind of on the fence. I wanted to pursue it, but I didn't know how, you know, my, my father was still flying at the time. Um, but he, there's a difference between general aviation and corporate or commercial aviation, right? Like there's a drastic difference. Um, (laughs) Night and day, yeah. Right. So he wasn't really well versed in what was going on in the general aviation field. And I didn't really know there was a difference between general aviation, commercial. Like I had no idea um, about any of it. So I didn't really know the questions to ask. I didn't know how to start. So I just kind of went, I'm going to wing it pun not intended, but, (laughs) um, and so I got my associates in photography. And then after that, when my, um, godfather passed away during his funeral, uh, they read that poem, I believe it's flight on high. I just kind of sat there and I was just reminded of this, this awe I had for him and my father, what, what they did. And I just went, you know what? I owe it to myself to actually pursue that and see if it's something, that I want to seek out. It's something I can excel in, or if it's just something that I admire because people I admire are in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so after he passed away, I, I talked to my dad about it and he said, well, let's get you set up with a discovery fight. Let's, let's see if you really want to do this. And I, I still remember I sat down with him probably for a good, like two hours. And he gave me my first ground lesson on like the fundamentals of flight, the four forces of flight, and I'm just sitting there like, what is all of this like gibberish? <laughs> like, what, what, what's going on? Uh, I still have all of every picture he drew, every diagram, all that. Um, but yeah, I, I booked my discovery flight and I've never really looked back. So Nice. So you, there, you were never meant to feel like you couldn't. There was nothing, nobody telling you that well, women don't fly or anything like that. It no. was just something that you didn't see. Did you know any women pilots by any chance? No, I did not. The only pilots I ever knew were my father and grandfather. Okay. Or godfather, I should say. I think of him as my grandfather, but. No, okay. But yeah, so that was, because that, that was my other thing. I, you always hear, when you look at the numbers, and we'll talk about the numbers a little bit later on, but you got to wonder if it's, uh, because even at the student pilot level, you know, there's still a, a pretty large disparity um, between men and women pilots, the numbers mm-hmm. that they make up. And that's something that I've wondered about is how much of that is there's just not that many women who want to get into aviation or is it there's women that want to or or like you that have always been interested by it, uh, but never necessarily it's just never occurred to them that could be you. There's no reason that it couldn't. I think the largest thing is just getting girls excited about it um, before high school. I mean, you can make career changes at any age, really. I mean, if you want to go commercial, obviously you can't if you're older 65, but, um, I think it's just getting the word out. Um, I've heard a lot that when young women or even older women see females in the cockpit versus just as stewardesses, it changes the way that they view that whole environment of being in an aircraft, being in an airport. If they actually see physically a woman there doing those things, it changes the stigma and the expectations. I mean, even now, when I step on a plane, I expect to see a man. And it's not because right. I'm like, I think of it as only a male dominated industry. It's just because women make up such a small percentage of the right. actual industry that you just naturally don't expect to see them. So I, I feel like just having women exposed to it um, from, from any angle, I mean, you could do general aviation, aerospace, like there's so much that you could 
apply. Um, but I think it really starts in that kind of STEM education in the younger women, just getting them interested, going, these are options for you. You don't have to be limited to only what you what you see, I guess. I guess with respect to the 99s specifically, I thought it was really interesting their, um, the process they went through in picking a name. Yes. Um, they were just kind of like, we need a name. And one of those names was Bird Women, which I kind of wish they picked <laughs> because it's hilarious. Um, but then Amelia was one of the people who said, we should just pick whatever number we get for our charter members. And that actually ranged from like, I think like 77 or something to 86 and then eventually 99. Okay. So So World War II breaks out and obviously again, massive, you know, impact to all parties involved. Um, By the time that 1941 rolled around, we get into the war, there's 935 women pilots. So in something like 12 years, almost tenfold, you know, nine or tenfold uh, increase in women pilots. So the, I'm sure that wasn't all due to the 99s, but I'm sure that having that centralized group of, of women that kind of getting the word out and, and that kind of stuff um, certainly helped uh, helped that kind of thing. Um, I know Amelia Earhart, she actually went to, and this was before the war, obviously, um, she had a job at Purdue University. And mm-hmm. part of what she did there is she would go to the women who were because it wasn't at this point it wasn't uncommon for women to go to college but they weren't really expected to do anything with that college education so right. much it was like go get educated so you can get married to somebody <laughs> right you'll be educated and you can get married to somebody who's educated and you can raise educated children yes was kind of the way that that it was looked at and she was finding these women on campus and she's like we're going to we're going to show you your options. Um, obviously there's nothing wrong with wanting to start a family and, and just have the education for the education, but she just wanted to make sure that it was going to be the woman's choice and not, Mm -hmm. this is what you were told to do. This is what you're going to do. Right. So, um, world war two breaks out and one of, one of your favorite, uh, aviatrixes is, is Cochrane, right? Yes, actually. Um, I am friends with a gentleman who used to be a Navy pilot. And now he teaches a drone class and he actually met her when he was like 15 or 16 uh, as a young Eagle. And he That's has awesome. her autograph from a seminar and he gave it to me and it's framed on my wall. And it's one oh, of wow. my most prized possessions. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah. So she had in, in ni- around 1941, she'd formed the uh, women's flying training detachment. Um, Mm -hmm. which I guess kind of focused on getting, uh, training women, um, to fly all that kind of stuff, uh, involved with the military. And then there was another, uh, woman pilot by the name of Nancy Harkness Love. And she was actually a charter member of the 99s. Uh, and she'd formed the women's auxiliary ferry squadron, which, um, obviously ferry squadron is going to ferry airplanes. They got a lot of airplanes. They need to move a lot of airplanes. Um, and sometime around 1943, uh, and Jackie Cochran was was huge on, she was like writing letters to Eleanor Roosevelt um, to get this, say, hey, we need to be more involved. Uh, we have all these women pilots, and you're not utilizing resources the way that you could be. Oh, mm-hmm. Obviously, her husband, but, uh, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt, she loved aviation. Uh, she was friends with Amelia Earhart. And so uh, I think Jackie Cochran knew that she gets FDR quicker by, by talking to Eleanor. Um, and it worked in 1943, uh, FDR actually merged those two, uh, divisions or departments, whatever you want to call them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the wasps were formed, which is the women's air force service pilots. And Jackie Cochran was actually the director of that, uh, that service. And, uh, Nancy Love was the head of the fairing division of, mm-hmm. of the wasps. So, and they did, the wasps did all kinds of stuff. So this wasn't exactly the 99s, but the two, two top women in the organization were 99s. Um, and I can imagine that most of, or many of the women that they brought on um, to serve in that capacity would have been 99s as well. Yep. 
Um, but they did everything. They, they ferried air, airplanes around. Um, they tested airplanes, uh, whether that was brand new airplanes or airplanes that had been repaired, which that's a terrifying proposition. I so, would hey, never this... want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> the, I've, I've been torn on the whole test pilot thing. Like on one hand, it seems, sounds like it'd be really cool and it would really mm-hmm. test your, your abilities, your flying abilities, because you have to rely you know, so heavily, there's not, not necessarily a book that you can rely on. Right. Um, but on the other hand, terrifying. And, but so the, these women would do, they would test the airplanes after maintenance or after they rolled off the, the supply line, um, they would move cargo around. They even took, uh, targets. So for like mm-hmm. ground troops, anti-aircraft, they would tow these targets in the air and they would pull the targets to be shot at by anti-aircraft. Yep. And that I don't know if they were able to release them first and then fly away. And then they tried to shoot them down as they glide to the ground. I don't know. I don't if, think so. I don't, <laughs> I don't either, but that seems like, <laughs> that seems like what they should have done. Yeah. Uh, so just a lot of the things these women were doing, obviously it's not going to be quite on the, on you know the danger spectrum not quite the level of of combat but right. very dangerous um very dangerous jobs and 38 of these women actually died um there was a 39th who she officially did not she's considered missing um she was yeah, a she's piece the of- only female from world war ii um who is missing really i didn't know that as, as far as female um like servicemen obviously at that time they were not given full military um benefits and recognition but um they are since now considered to be of service to have been uh military so she is officially the only woman well i shouldn't say the only woman obviously we've been in more confrontations and and things like that but the only woman from world war ii Right, right. There's a great video. Um, I know it's at least at the Women in Aviation annual conference. They bring a booth. Um, you can go sit. It's like a, it's basically like a, a giant trailer that they have a movie screen in, so it's all dark. Um, and it's it's a bunch of the wasps who, um, I don't know if any of them have since passed away after they've filmed this video, but uh, the surviving wasps basically retelling their story, and they put it together in this really beautiful blend of a... Um, um, like, you know, they recreated the scenes with, with um, women just to kind of show you what the wasps are talking about. But it, it has a lot of good quotes. I watched it like three times when I went to this conference this past uh, March. And each time I cried, even though I knew like what they were going to say, what was coming. <laughs> it was just like so inspirational. But um, yeah, if you Is ever that... get a chance. Do you know if that's on YouTube or anything? I don't. Um, the organization that actually has taken up telling a lot of their stories and preserving a lot of the wasp um, information is called CAF, C-A-F. That's Charlie Alpha Foxtrot uh, Wasp Squadron. Okay. Um, is that commemorative Air Force? Yep. Okay. Well, so you know what I'm talking about. The, <laughs> well, I didn't know they had a, a wasp squadron, but yeah, the commemorative Air Force, uh, they've, uh, I've tried and follow a lot of the stuff that they're doing around the country. Mm-hmm. So because obviously they have different chapters and yeah they have a separate wasp like program um all dedicated to specifically the wasps okay that's awesome yeah i'll uh, i'll see if i can find something about that and and link to it in the show notes so people can go if that video is is out there or if at least just uh, a web page so they can kind of find out um get in touch with the the commemorative air force out there uh, but in 1977, had, I think it was an executive order. They said, you know, everybody who served with the wasps is now officially, you know, uh, considered having military service for that time. Uh, and then in 2009, they went a step further and they said everybody who served with the wasps has been awarded the Congressional Gold Medal. So yep. kind of one of those not quite enough too late type things, but at least they started to recognize that they did play such a, a vital role. They flew, the group mm-hmm. flew like 60 million miles or something. Just It's something crazy. Yeah. So, I mean, they did a lot for the war and it wasn't directly mm-hmm. the 99s, but it was all under, you know, leadership that was in the 99s and that kind of thing. Actually, in order to 
I, I don't actually have this written down as a source. I just remember talking to somebody about it, um, actually from the Commemorative Air Force, the WASP um, program that they have. Um, but in order to become a WASP, you actually already had to have had flight experience. So you couldn't just come in off the street. So it is, like you're saying, very logical to think that most of these women who were WASPs were indeed 99s because the 99s obviously were a collective of individuals who had their private certificates. That makes sense. Yep. So Ruth Nichols, she was a uh, 99. She had a company called Relief Wings and it was similar to what you would think of as like kind of like Red Cross, Civil Air Patrol, that type of thing. Obviously they're they're using aircraft to provide relief rescue efforts. Um, She actually turned over her business during World War II um, to the Civil Air Patrol because they formed in the same um, year and they welcomed these women to help them out. And so she basically said, here's my business. This is what we do. Take it. So I wow. think that's kind of cool. I don't think it was ever um, like refounded or kind of broke off from Civil Air Patrol. I don't know that for a fact either way, but. That's crazy. So that basically the, that whole mission just went over to Civil Air Patrol and she's like, here's here's what we got. This is here's the resources yep. we built so far. This is do your thing. Yep. And that was, you say that was Ruth Nichols? Yes, Ru- Ruth Nichols. Okay. And I think she was one of the charter members as well, wasn't she? I think so. Yep. So yeah, after, after the war kind of wound down the 99s, they, they kind of started to focus more on like you were saying, of course that was during the war, but they started to, to focus on that say, okay, yeah, the airplane's an incredible weapon of war, but look at all the, the civil, you know, civil flight, you can do crazy things with it, you know, delivering the mail, moving people from place to place, mm-hmm. um, you know, mercy flight type thing. And I'm sure they didn't have that exact thing then, but there's just so many great benefits of flight that don't involve killing people and breaking their things. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, it was great for that, but now we're not in war and let's focus on the happier side of aviation. And so that was kind of their mission. Um, you know, as time wore on, women are still fighting for, for their place at the table, so to speak. Um, in 1964, there was a woman named Joan Miriam Smith, uh, and she actually completed Amelia Earhart's solo flight around the world. Mm-hmm. And she was the first to do that. Not the first woman. She was the first person to yep. do an equatorial flight solo, uh, around the world. And it just blows my mind that like there was nobody when Amelia Earhart went missing, of course she had her navigator Fred Noonan in the aircraft. Yeah. Um, but she was so far ahead of her time. And it took decades later before anybody was like, Hey, I can finish that. And yeah. so it was in the nineteen sixties, um, this woman, she was able to do it. Uh she was a ninety nine. And since the war they've they've sponsored and hosted different races and air shows and stuff like that to kind of promote aviation for women and aviation in general just to kind of bring it to the masses and stuff like that they actually um interestingly enough i don't know if have you ever seen one of the uh, compass roses that 99s have painted i haven't no, no. oh man but it sounds uh, like a good story. Let's... so they have the program um it actually started after the war um in 1946, um, they wanted to help start an airway program to basically help pilots, you know, identify airports and places from the air. Um, so they actually started what we now take for granted. You know, you're, you're coming into land and you see, obviously, they would already have had runways painted. But if you see something that says, like, I don't know, Denver Airport, I don't think they actually have something painted on the ground. But they would start... <laughs> painting and laying out even with rocks the name of the airports just so people knew like this is where you where you are if you're not intending to be here obviously you did something wrong (laughs) but i mean they kind of helped uh pave that pathway to making general aviation and aviation in general um a little bit more organized so they started they called it an airway program i don't think it actually has to do with uh, the airways that we have designated now. Um, but it really just had to do with painting markers on the ground. And then that has now trickled down to their beautiful compass roses that they have, um, 
on certain airports, they actually go out and paint them, make sure that they're up to date. Um, but if you go up um, and you're trying to make sure that um, your VORs are, are good, if you do a VOR check or VOT check, um, you can taxi over to them and yeah, you should look them up. They're really pretty. They're blue and white. Um, I have one at my home airport here in Colorado at uh, Centennial. I've seen a couple other ones, um, but that okay. is actually something that they still do as an organization. That's something um, they actually say on their website. If you haven't participated in something like this, either you're a brand new 99 or you're really lazy. So <laughs> it's something. <laughs> Lots that of opportunities then, right? Yeah. So they, they still keep that spirit of keeping navigation and safety kind of prevalent at the forefront, but also engaging the community through it. So Okay. I have to do a little research because we have our compass rose at uh, North Las Vegas. I think it's blue and white. So mm-hmm. it's possible. That's the only only compass rose that I've can remember seeing at an airport. So it's maybe that was one of theirs. I don't know. I'll have to yeah. do a little digging now and, and see if I can find out about that. It's yeah. interesting. All right. So 99s today. What uh what kind of stuff are they they doing these days? So, like I had said, um, they're really big on on still community, bringing women together, um, making sure that we all feel we have a, a great, wonderful, safe place to learn and grow and thrive. Um, but also, like I had said earlier, not just to say, yeah, we're women and we're doing this kind of <laughs> in your face. It's more of like, <laughs> yeah, I'm a woman and I recognize that I can do this and I feel proud of myself doing it. Um, so they, they have a lot of really great programs. Um, there's a lot of networking. If you want to mentor, you can basically, if you are just starting out, you can continue your whole career just by being involved in the 99s and finding those connections, that inspiration, the empowerment you need. Or if you've already been a 99, then you can do the flip side of that and you can reach out and you can help somebody basically kickstart the rest of their life um, and really bring out those passions in somebody. So they're really huge on that. And a part of that also, they have um, several scholarships that they offer that helps with flight training. Um, It kind of depends on where you're at in your flight training and your career, um, what you actually use that money for, obviously. But they do a lot in terms of trying to get people engaged, keep you engaged, keep you inspired and, and moving forward. They also have two museums. So there's the Amelia Earhart Museum. They also have their own museum, which includes a copy of the original, uh, one of those original letters that went out to the 117 pilots at the time. Oh, that's cool. It's called the 99s Museum of Women Pilots. And it is a huge, huge place with exhibits and documents and so that they kind of stay up to date in terms of, you know, keeping people informed, not just about, okay, yeah, here's the 99s, but like, here's other things that women have done in history. It's not just 99 specific, which again, attests to the whole point of the 99s. It's not really about the chapter. It's about people who are in it and mm-hmm. have been in it and will be in it. So, And that one's in Oklahoma City, right? Yep. I was, I'm pretty sure I passed that as in Oklahoma City two weeks ago, I think it was. And on the way to the airport... I think it's actually on the airport grounds, Amelia Earhart Drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was pretty sure that was was what that was. So yep, I've never been there, but I I would love to take a cross country and go to one of those museums or both. I feel like that'd be really fun. Yeah. So uh, was going to talk about famous ninety nines, but we kind of did that the whole time. So, <laughs> uh, and then I, I looked up a list of of other ninety nines that were considered famous, and most of them don't have names that I recognized. Um, and so you might recognize some of them. I didn't write them down. I have to go back and look, um, being more involved with them. But mm-hmm. so I decided we would, uh, I feel like they need, if they're, they're famous 99s, I'm sure they have great stories. So at some point go back and, and hit some of those and, uh, do episodes on them. But, um, I did pull up some numbers. We talked earlier about the, the student pilot, the disparity between men and women pilots uh, at the student level and then, again, at the private level. Uh, so one thing I found interesting is that 14% of student pilots are women, mm-hmm. which doesn't sound high because that's still almost 90% that aren't. Um, but at that level, 14% uh, 
of the pilots at the student level are women. Uh, by the time they hit private pilot, we're down to like 6%. Yep. So for some reason, there is a huge drop. There's a huge drop on both men and women uh, as far as how many student pilots there are versus how many become private pilot or higher. But for some reason, it's much, much higher. Yeah. And so I don't know if that is, and I don't know, did you have any bad experiences with um, when you became a student, people making you feel like you didn't belong there? Oh, yeah. Okay. I I, um, I don't really know a nice way or concise way to put it, um, but I never felt, I had never felt that um, gender discrimination in aviation until I actually got into aviation, if that makes sense. So okay. thinking about getting into aviation, looking things up, asking people questions, trying to get involved, that whole experience was great. But when I actually started flying as a student pilot, that's when I experienced people looking down on me or expecting less of me because okay. I'm a woman. And it, it was kind of this weird thing. It was just like, where did, where is this coming from? Like, it, it felt really like it was coming out of left field. But that's exactly why organizations like the 99s still exist, because you do have a lot of discrimination, horrible experiences, even if you're you know, in your 60s looking to retire, you still have that. And I think even just outside of the gender aspect, you still have discrimination of, of any sort. I mean, you encounter discrimination wherever you go. It's it's how you rise from it and use it as fuel to keep going. But I will say, definitely, um, as a student pilot, there were many, many times I kind of sat down and went, why am I doing this? Like if all these people, I shouldn't say all these people, it wasn't like I had a horde of people coming after me with (laughs) pitchforks and going, you know, you you shouldn't do this. Um, But I just kind of, I found myself sitting a lot going, am I doing the right thing? Is this really for me? Am I smart enough to do this? Am I capable? And and it, it hits you, especially when you're a student pilot, because that's when you're building all of your confidence for the very first time. Once you're private, you have kind of a, a borderline lower uh, lying level of confidence. And then you work on that as you build your instrument commercial, as you keep moving up. Um, but when you're a student pilot, unless you're just very confident and you have a really good support system, sometimes it's really hard to, to get past that. And especially from a female perspective. So it, would you say, from your experience, would you say that that's probably a good reason why there's such a significant drop from 14% down to like four to six percent moving forward from the the student pilot level i would say so um i think it definitely is it's a task for flight schools and for um cfis dpes to kind of look at and go maybe what what social and maybe even cultural things has this individual gone through in terms of their training Obviously, when you take a check ride, you're evaluated on your performance and your ability to meet standards. It shouldn't be anything based off of gender, or color, or skin, none of that. Um, but I, I definitely think there's something that happens as a student pilot that prevents w- women and men, but specifically women, from taking that next step. And whether that's just discrimination, whether it's comments, whether it's attitudes from flight schools or CFIs. I think it that's that's really specific to the individual, um, but there there's some sort of disconnect there, definitely. And I I could say that firsthand through stories I have, stories I've heard of other people go through. So, and I think I mean I've seen it on on different levels. I've seen it on rare occasions. I've seen it directed towards women, uh, but I've seen on many occasions just directed towards student pilots of all demographics. You know, they go to ask a question or something that maybe they should know the answer to. And it, you know, it, maybe it's a thing that, that they should know at the level that they're at and they don't know, but rather than use it as a teaching moment, it, mm-hmm. it becomes like a, you know, you're there, they get derided for not knowing the thing. So yep. well, you should, you should know the thing. Well, well, yeah, that's why I asked the question and I've <laughs> seen that other people do that. So I think, and you know, obviously Obviously, it's something that men need to not direct towards women, but they 
everybody needs to not direct it towards anybody. If you want, you want aviation to grow, we need to be welcoming of all newcomers, almost, almost anybody. If they want to fly, they should be able to fly. And right. we need to be welcoming of, of everybody. And cause that's how aviation is going to die on mm-hmm. the general aviation level. There will always be commercial aviation, uh, hopefully, but at the general aviation hobby pilots uh, hopping from place to place and stuff like that, that's all going to die if don't kindle that uh, new generation trying to come in. So. Yeah. And I think you have a really good point about um, asking questions. I think that was my biggest thing, even after private a little bit, was just asking questions. I, I think, I mean, everyone's been a student at one point or another in their life. And sometimes you have a question. And then you sit and think, that's a really stupid question. If I say this out loud, people will know that I don't know it or they'll think all these horrible things about me. But I think maybe that's a stigma in aviation that we have to overcome because a lot of the times the questions we ask can involve safety or even if it's not directly related to, I don't know, if you're flying and you're wondering if you're number one or number two for landing. I mean, that directly is connected to safety or maybe it's just a question about vors the reciprocal of a vor radial or something else down the line if you don't have that foundation it could cause a safety issue so i think going back to what you said about asking questions we just have to kind of create a better environment acknowledging that if people are asking questions it's not because they're dumb it's not because they don't want to know obviously if they're asking the question they want to attain the information and grow in some way um so I think maybe that's part of a solution is just kind of creating a space for people to ask questions, even if they're really stupid, that you'd rather be alive and well-informed than not have asked the question and assume that you were ignorant and flat as a pancake on the ground or something, you know I mean? Yeah. Things to work on, I guess, for everybody. <laughs> yeah. Ask stupid questions and answer there. stupid questions without making people feel dumb. <laughs> there you go. That, exactly. <laughs> All right, so uh, so somebody wants to get involved with the 99s, how they go about doing that? The easiest way is to reach out to your local chapter. Um, when you head to the 99s website, there's actually a special place you can just go ahead and want to um, um, request to join. Um, I'm pulling that right now. So um, on the homepage, there's a bunch of little blue boxes on the top. There's one special one that says join the 99s. You click on that. And there is an online application you can fill out. But I would recommend rather than do that, that's a great option. Um, look up a local chapter and reach out to them because they are the people you're actually going to see. You're going to have conversations with in person. You're going to be able to ask them questions, go on flights. They're going to be the ones who are actually physically there for you um, and you'll be involved with. So I would think that would be a little bit better than just applying um, to the organi- organization in general. Get involved in person and, and kind of see what yeah, about. Yeah, and, and especially if you use social media, look them up on social media, see if they have some event coming up that they posted, um, reach out and say, hey, I'm not a member yet. I'd like to maybe come to your event, maybe see if you can get to know people in person and then apply that way too. I mean, it's all about getting together, but in order to get together, you have to actually take that first step. And the first step is simply saying, I want to do this. And there you go. That yeah, makes sense. And then uh, I, I saw on their website as well, um, they have a, a section, Friends of the 99. So if you are, uh, mm-hmm. to be a 99, you have to be a woman and you have to be a pilot of some level. Uh, I think they recently opened up to uh, student, student pilots. pilots. Yep. Uh, so if you get your student pilot certificate, you can join the 99s. Um, mm-hmm. However, if you happen to be a man, or you happen to not have your pilot license, uh, I believe you can still be a friend of the 99s, is what they call it. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's kind of like a, you don't have voting rights, you don't have, um, you're not a full, full-blown full member, uh, but you still you go to the meetings and, and help out and all that kind of stuff. So you can still be involved with the 99s even if you don't, um, can't be a member because you don't check all the boxes. Um, you can be a friend of the 99s that is also on their website. Uh, I want to thank you for, for coming on and, and helping me talk about the 99s. Um, 
it was a good time. The uh, somebody wants to find you on social media. Um, where where would they have to look? Uh, you can find me on Instagram. My handle is the Flying Ginger. So just like Flying Ginger, <laughs> but with only one G. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd love to share experiences and answer any questions anyone might have, or if anyone needs encouragement, inspiration. I am happy to be any kind of friend that I can be. So. I came up with this the other night at like 11 p.m. and I had to write it down. So part of the joy of being a 99 is that in the name, there is 99 and there's always room for one more and you could be the one more. Oh, I like that. <laughs> the uh, write, write the 99 and see if you can get that in the uh, the official official motto. Something. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Well, hey, thank you so much for coming on and uh, talking with me and it was a good time. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, that's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the show and learned something new. If you have, make sure you never miss an episode by following on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you've been listening for a few weeks now, please consider rating or leaving a review. It'd really mean a lot to me to see that. Y'all stay safe this week, and as my wife always says, fluffy landings. <laughs>